Our scripture reading this morning is um, from 1 Kings chapter 13, the whole chapter. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name. And he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God, and pray for me, that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and became as it was before. And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. And the man of God said to the king, If you give me half your house, I will not go in with you, and I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way that you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. Now an old prophet lived in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told to their father the words that he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, Which way did he go? And his sons showed him the way that the man of God who came from Judah had gone. And he said to his sons, Saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he mounted it. And he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, Come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with you or go in with you, neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by the way that you came. And he said to him, I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you into your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. And as they sat at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried to the man of God who came from Judah, Thus says the Lord, Because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, Eat no bread and drink no water. Your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. And after he had eaten bread and drunk, he saddled the donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. And as he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the road, and the donkey stood beside it. The lion also stood beside the body. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road and the lion standing beside the body. 
And they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. And when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard of it, he said, It is the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord. Therefore the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him, according to the word that the Lord spoke to him. And he said to his sons, Saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it. And he went and found his body thrown in the road, and the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. The lion had not eaten the body or torn the donkey. And the prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back to the city to mourn and to bury him. And he laid the body in his own grave. And they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. And after he had buried him, he said to his sons, When I die, bury me in the grave which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the... For the saying that he called out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places that are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn away from his evil way, but he made priests for the high places again from among all the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Anna. Um, good morning. I'm Howard Brown, the pastor here at Christ Central Church. And um, before we get into the text today, I want to thank first um, Pastor Drew Martin, one of our church planning pastors of the church we're starting in West Charlotte. Um, thank you for preaching the gospel out of Ephesians. We've been in Ephesians for two weeks um, and taking a break from First Kings. And also... Much congratulations to our pastoral intern, Ramon Belagamba, for preaching his first message at Christ Central. He did a great job. And, um, and uh, awesome, awesome job, young man, you know. Um, God is working and uh, doing what we envision here, equipping and sending out leaders here at Christ Central Church, and it's just good. Um, for me as founding pastor on this 13th anniversary celebration um, Sunday to see stuff like that come to fruition through this church, through you young men and women serving and, um, and out of this congregation by God's hand, by God's grace and for his glory. I just want to say thank you um, to the Lord for showing himself um, mightily here at Christ Central. Um, with that said, I also want to give a special shout-out to Reverend Omari Hill. Where you at, Omari? Just stand up real quick in the back. Um, who's, who's here this morning? I want you to, um, to, you know, take a good look at him um, because um, uh, with him being one of just over 50 African-American pastors in our denomination, it's kind of a rare sighting. You know, you, you got you to gotta see this now. Um, for those of you who came on safari today to see what was going on at Christ Central, this wild place, African-American PCA ordained pastor. Right back there, another one. And to now make three of us in one service, including Charles. That's three out of about 50. And that 50 is out of thousands altogether in our denomination. Praise the Lord, right? <laughs> and uh, 
And, well, you know, well, Amari, just like Charles, started here as an intern at Christ Central not long after we first started and uh, was in the first and founding class of ruling elders here at Christ Central. That's history back there, y'all. And um, after graduating from RTS, he was ordained as a teaching elder, and he started the RUF chapter, um, our campus ministry over at UNCC, and he and his wife, Sharice, who is in her third trimester and couldn't make the trip this time. They have two kids, Mia and Preston, and um, they lived right behind me and Kelly in, Bel in the Belmont neighborhood um, when it was still the hood. You remember that? When any a gunshot or something, we called, y'all all right? Um, was that y'all? Uh, anyway, so um, safe to say we had each other's backs during that time. Um, and then being the New Yorkers they were born to be. Well, I guess Sharice was born in Jamaica, then moved to New York. But anyway, they're New Yorkers, Bronx and Queens. They left Charlotte to go back home where he worked for a little known, kind of an obscure church in our denomination, Redeemer. New York with, you know, pastor you guys never heard of, Pastor Tim Keller. And he worked there for a few years to then go and help plant a church in Brooklyn for the last few years. Well, Amari is back letting us check him out and him check us out because he's a candidate, a very promising candidate to possibly return here as an assistant pastor at Christ Central. So pray and say hello to him. A lot of people want him, so it's not a done deal. Um, but ask him some hard questions, and after you meet him, no, he can't have my job. <laughs> Y'all can't get rid of me, because I know how this brother comes off. <laughs> Welcome, native son of, of the church, one of my best friends and brother to ministry. Thanks for coming. All right, with that said, ch black church style, first giving glory and honor to my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Y'all know about that. Some of y'all do. I bring your attention back to our sermon series in the Old Testament, book of 1 Kings, in chapter 13. We read the whole thing today. You know Pastor Brown's back when you have 34 verses. <laughs> Let's catch ourselves up, back up where this passage picks up, right? The greatest king in terms of kingdom reaching well, Solomon has died, and his immature jerk son Rehoboam takes over. And he helps aid the God plan split of the kingdom with his stink attitude. And Israel becomes two kingdoms, north and south. And the king of the north, Game of Thrones. Okay, the king of the north um, is Jeroboam. Um, but things are hard for King Jeroboam, at least psychologically and politically. He is not of royal pedigree. Just a blue-collar local community activist leader. And though 10 of the 12 tribes are under him politically and, and geographically, the all-important worship center for Israel is conveniently located, convenient for Rehoboam, the southern king, that is, in the capital city in the southern kingdom. So you can understand Jeroboam's anxiety. It looks like the God of Israel is with the south and not with Jeroboam and the northern kingdom. And for a king, clearly struggling with an inferiority complex, but, but at the same time hungry for power and ambition to make his thing shine, he builds his own worship centers, three major ones in major cities in the north. 
one in Shechem, one in Bethel, and way up north in Dan. These places of worship were complete with his own priest from the north, altars, sacrifices, and golden calves. Yeah, golden calves, which tells us almost everything we need to know about these worship centers and how God viewed them. The Bible tells us that Jeroboam sets up these golden calves and says, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt, a calf, y'all. A golden calf, a Chick-fil-A mascot with fronts, right? You know this ain't right. And it wasn't. Because though it wasn't God's plan to split the kingdom, the temple and worship and sacrifices and the priesthood was not supposed to be split and franchised and have four convenient locations to serve you. But to stay in Judah where God's presence was in a temple for all Israelites to worship. And doing his unsanctioned idol-based worship in the sight of God, who clearly said in his first three commandments, no other gods, no idol statues, and no using and putting my name in places and ministries and in your mouth for things I have not said I was actually a part of. For doing those things, Jeroboam was clearly already in trouble. It is safe to say Jeroboam did not have a good first hundred days in the office. And again, we, we get Jeroboam because we all feel pressure. We all in here feel pressure to perform, to produce, to be secure on our own, to escape our fears, to, to soothe and comfort our doubts, to, to be happy, to, to find ways to deal with all the historical and new pain and suffering we and the ones we love feel. Some of us to just survive in this place. Lots of pressure. And the Lord, let's just say it, he don't always come when and how you want him. And most times you can't see him. And often you just can't feel him. Our spiritual lives, right, go through times and places of disappointment and dryness. Sometimes the God, God and the Bible and all that stuff has not performed the way we thought it would. Some of you have been trained and taught theologically that if you do this and do that, then your Christian life or, or, or spiritual life was going to be perfect. Sometimes being a believer is just whack, Right? just feels so hard. Sometimes what God says doesn't fit or, or in our unique or dramatic or really different than anybody else kind of circumstances. And for some of us, we just don't feel like going this way or doing it that way regardless of what God, who seems so far away and invisible, says. And though the Bible tells us to anticipate these kinds of feelings and situations, even if you are the best Christian, even if you are the best person, when that broken kind of world falls on you, as we see in Jeroboam's actions, we all will be tempted to come up with a religion or side religion or make a slide rule out of what God says. We take what God says and, and, and grade it on the curve. We play the law of averages with God's truth. We cheat ahead or behind what God says and desires for us and develop a meology with our theology, right? Everybody in here, including the one preaching to you. 
like Jeroboam. We mold God's will to shape and fit our limitations and dire circumstances and heartaches instead of letting our mess be molded around God's word and power and plan. And that molding process that we do on our own is called idolatry. It's going to become a constant theme as we go through the rest of 1 Kings, and so we need to get it right today. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time on idolatry. And that molding process, right, is cooked up, y'all, in the deep idol oven, in the kiln, right, in the mix studio and kitchen of the human heart, mind, and soul, sometimes way down deep. Like 17th century theologian John Calvin said, the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. And like the Bible says in Jeremiah, the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? There are two things we see in God's Word teaching us about idols we want to get to today and idolatry, um, which we can see in this story. And again, is going to be a major and reoccurring thing in Kings. First, this passage shows and teaches us that the Lord judges and will judge our idolatry. And secondly, that the Lord will save us from our idolatry. Judge and save. Two simple points, but, not, but for a not-so-simple issue. We need the Lord's guidance, right, to judge um, by, okay, ready, you note-takers, by sub-point A, breaking our idols down, and secondly, sub-point B, by letting our idols break us. And when I say break our idols down, I mean break down as in breaking it down, okay? Telling us about our idols and ourselves, showing it for what it is and who we have become because of it. Look beginning at verse 1 with me in this passage. And behold, a man of God, I'm going to start, I'm going to call him the good prophet from here on out, guys, okay? Just so we don't get him confused. Because sometimes I like to say he and y'all don't know who I'm talking about. Behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeremiah, Jer, excuse me, Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priest of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. Do you see how um, the, the altar and the sacrifices and idolatry and unsanctioned worship is broken down? The Bible says that the prophet from Judah cried out against the altar and its idolatry and broke it down, how? By the word of God. How do we know? How do we know how and where and why we are worshiping wrongly and, and giving our lives to and in, in a way that maybe we shouldn't? God's word tells us and teaches us and shows us, and that can be as easy as, hey, don't make a golden calf and bow down and worship it, right? Or it can be as easy as, hey, don't say God told you something or that this is how God works when his word doesn't say that. Or don't say Buddha is God too. 
Or this religion is, you know, all religions all lead to God, right? This is just another way. Think Jesus is another good prophet that kind of shows you another way to get there. They all lead to the same place or, or same moral, loving, justice, and mercy outworking in our world. That's really what the Catholic is supposed to do. Did you know that? Another shinier, easier to accept gospel to get to God. Questions about who is God? Who should you be worshiping and how? And if you're not worshiping the right one in the right way, the word of God in the Bible through the faithful, let me say this sometimes, faithful takes a long time to grow from, got to stick with it. Ministry of the word will tell and teach and grow and disciple us all to know it. The ministry of God's word will break down your false gods and religion and religious activities and thoughts and correct you. In the Bible and Christianity, right? It has a bad reputation for doing that thing, right? To some of you, it seems believers and Christians, especially born-again types like some of us, love going around like the God police or inspectors of the faith. Just like this prophet, and, and as obnoxious as that might sound, it is partially true in this way as we see in the passage. God's word of ministry, through the ministry, the teaching, the faithful preaching, Bible study and reading and studying of it all, calls out, guys. It, it cries out against anything in our lives and heart that exalts itself next to or higher than God and his chosen way of doing things. But it is more complicated than showing where there are golden calves. Man, wouldn't it just be easy if idolatry is about some golden calves you can move? And even if it were, you wouldn't move them. <laughs> Why? The word comes along, and God's truth comes along and shows how your heart has become an altar of something that can't and isn't real and not really helping you. See, the Bible says in this story that Jeroboam's altar splits and breaks and then ashes of sacrifice are poured out on the ground. Real disrespectful and desecrating stuff, right? I don't know what has become or is your God or your self-developed me or you-ology, whether it's having or not having a certain kind of relationship, whether that consumes you or maybe you, you are pushed by a job or a certain life goal or ambition or whether you may have twisted and focused God's word in order to get wealthy or healthy or successful or feel more power. Harry Potter style, right? Turning Bible verses from God's word into your personal spells to reach your personal destiny as a lot of churches teach you can do. And even... Some of them, try to, you try to use God's word to make yourself feel morally better than people. Oh, making it look like God backs your political party, right? Twisting the word of God to make him a Republican or Democrat. Or an American. Or that God loves and backs our country more than others. That's idolatry. Or finding supreme pride in your culture or ethnicity or even living in the inferiority of it. Whether you're living for all sorts of unsanctioned, unsanctioned sexual and emotional commitments and addictions. However your idol comes out of the mix, out of the oven and stays on top, know this. God's word judges that thing and calls it all out and this 
respects it as no God at all, as having no love and mercy and power to truly save you. And so the word, me too, and I study it, you know, to preach, went to seminary and all that. The Bible can make us feel very uncomfortable. I do not like reading this stuff, and I really don't like listening to other preachers. Because I can preach to myself stuff I like to hear. You know, this is kind of a one-way conversation without your, you know, little amens and all that and, and all that. But for the most part, I can even, and this is sometimes a pitfall, pastors preaching, I can preach one way. But when the word is preached to me and I see it and I'm under the ministry of the gospel, and I am, it's very uncomfortable. Because idols are born and live in our hearts, just like the altar, in our emotions, in our relationships, and not just in our actions, y'all. They are tricky and sticky and can hide in plain sight as religious feelings and success and beauty and make us feel good and make us feel all sorts of access to goodness and power. And when God's word comes and asks for obedience and for you to let it go or to have it broken up or for it to lose power or prominence over your life, the, the, the Bible describes it as having open heart surgery sometimes with little or no anesthesia in fact the bible says in hebrews that for the word of god is living and active that means it's always on the move god doesn't tell you when your surgery of your heart is always planned it's sharper, it says, than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In fact, the altar in this story, again, metaphorically represents our hearts. And when God's word and the ministry of God's word, the gospel comes and breaks on our idols, it cuts, it hurts, and frankly, it might feel like you're going to lose your life and lifestyles. Sometimes I get my idols broken best, like in counseling. Yeah, I'm sorry, y'all. Your pastor goes to counseling. If you ain't been there, what's wrong with you? <laughs> Stuff get mixed up in here. I ain't right. You think just because I'm right? No, I ain't right. I'm trusting in Jesus to come back and save me too. But sometimes I go to counseling. One time I was in there with Kelly. Man, the thing got to me. I wanted to kill the guy. <laughs> Seriously. He was telling me, he was reading my idols, and it felt like I was going to die in there if I didn't get up and punch him in the face. <laughs> and he even said it. Hey, you want to fight me? Yes, I do. <laughs> Kelly said she could feel the heat coming off my body. Counseling me can be dangerous to your health. God's word, right, does the same thing when it really gets in there. It gets at the heart and life of your deep-seated motivations and loves like nothing else. But God not only breaks down our idols, he lets our idols break us. Look at verse 2 again. We're going to kill verse 2, okay? And the, and the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name. And he shall sacrifice on you, the altar, the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. Do you see what has happened here? The idolatry that Jeroboam used to get life and comfort and good does what? It breaks bad. 
right? Not, not only against him, but the community and relationships he's a part of and responsible for. Look real close at the last verse we have here. And when he decides not to repent after everything, the last verse says, and this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam, right? That's just his personal sin, right? So as to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth, the house of Jeroboam, the people. And when the house of the king goes down, guess who suffers? The people. Jeroboam's idolatry burns him and them. The country and families will suffer. It will take them down. It takes life instead of giving it. Look, this book is going to really be hard for the North Kingdom, and it starts with idolatry. The Lord lets us know that any other way and reason for living life will burn us and leave us and our community and families empty. So, dude, yesterday at Presbyterian from, what is it, Harvest? What's the thing? Was it Harvest, Charles? Harvest Ministries, and they deal with sexual addictions, and he and, um, comes in and does counseling and really helps folk who are dealing with sexual brokenness. And um, he described our idols as giving us nothing but an empty candy wrapper. But getting an empty candy wrapper might be nothing, but boy, it affects you greatly. So though the Bible teaches that an idol is nothing at all, no God at all, no redemption at all for the person, it does not mean that it is not harmful to us. You can't confuse the two things. Oh, I'm just doing this thing. I ain't really bothering nobody. I ain't really no God. I ain't really. It's just a way of thinking, you know. It's just on the side. Now, here's a hard part for us, for a hard part to hear in all of this, and I don't like preaching this kind of stuff because it applies to me too, and it's so difficult to accept. But the bootleg altar and worship, right? The counterfeit theology, right? It becomes places of pain because according to what we see goes on with this prophet, God actually uses that stuff to bring correction and judgment in our lives. I told you it was hard. God promises and prophesies when he mentions Josiah coming, King Josiah coming down and breaking the altar. This is a king from the south, exactly who they don't want, coming in, tearing down the altar, breaking things up, destroying them, killing their priest, burning the bones on the altar. God promises and has prophesied then that the altars, hear this now, and he, the altars are personified and he's talking to the altars like it's, it's alive. He prophesies that the altars will be used to judge those who worshiped and led worship on it in an unsanctioned way to a fake version of God. And again, the terrible irony is God is going to let their idolatry condemn and then shame them. And so if we look, the altars in and of themselves are nothing. But God takes our disobedience and may allow it to consume us. All of us have experienced it to devour and drive us stupid or harden our hearts. The Bible puts it this way. Sometimes God gives us over to foolishness. He lets us have. Now, here's, here's such a horrible thing to hear. I mean, to, to realize sometimes he lets us have what we truly love and are worshiping and wanting. He'll give you over what you really love. And in that he lets what and who we really love have us and take us 
addict us, confuse us, and burn our sensibilities, and sometimes to take our humanity and dignity. If we worship at that altar, whatever it is, whatever sin pattern, whatever you know, drive that we shouldn't have, whatever kind of small g God it is, that thing will burn us. In fact, to have bodies burned and buried in a way that this prophet talks about is saying your humanity and dignity will be taken away. Isn't it ironic that half the idol, most of the idolatry we engage in as human beings is to kind of gain some type of humanity and dignity? And the opposite happens here. When we seek to be more human, more dignified, find more justice and more mercy outside of the God who created us and restores our dignity in the God of justice and mercy, we actually forfeit it. And we lose it. Oh, the story happens so many times that this leader or this person seeks to gain more dignity and humanity for themselves, and it backfires, and it has to take humanity and dignity from others in order for it to work. And when Jeroboam, right, you know, sees this, he has to realize that he'll be shamed for putting his heart and trust in something that is not really God and not, really, not real and not God at all. And then he'll have to face like us the real God with no real righteousness, with a false grace with a made-up mercy that is not where you and I want to be. And when Jeroboam sees it, y'all, right, that, that his world is spinning out of control and maybe God really is in charge and maybe his idols are going to consume him, this is what happens in verse 4. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar saying, Seize him! And his hand, when he stretched it out against him, dried up so that he could not draw it back. And then the altar's torn down and the ashes poured out. And then later God restores his hand. Some believe Jeroboam had a temporary stroke or an artery clog to his arm or some kind of embolism. But plain and simple, you know what this dramatic event of the most powerful man in the northern kingdom tells us? That you and I can't stop or hold back or control God's judgment and our idols breaking our lives in our hearts, in our world. Spin control on idolatry in the heart is humanly impossible because you're going to have to make another idol to control the idol that is consuming you. We cannot in our own strength, our own goodness, deal with idols and handle our brokenness. I mean... I look at this room. I don't even have to look at the room, right? I can look in the mirror. Man, we have some altered filled, altar filled lives from north to south. And some along the way. Some of you don't really deal with the idols until you go to certain places. Some of you don't go, like going to another city where you already have an altar, so at home you're pretty good, but when you go to work, it's different. Sometimes it's just a place. And you got little altars hidden in, in closets and over there. And what's funny is, uh, I, don't, I mean, altars and idolatry, sometimes they're trap doors. You don't see it until you're walking in pants. Bam, there it is. An altar. You didn't know. You're trusting it. Sometimes it comes up around certain people. Sometimes for me, it comes when I go back home. Man, I become 16 all over again. 
I've told y'all this. We're driving home to Charleston, my home. And Kelly's like, hey, about 50 miles out. Howard, when you get with your brothers, can you please still be a husband? Because I got this thing that clicks when I go home. And I just want to be a kid again. I want to joke around. I want to be stupid. I want to be immature. And there's some goodness good to that. I like cutting up and telling the same stories over a million times. But at the expense, and all, we're all married. At the expense of our wives, it is ridiculous. And the kids, everybody hungry, crying. Me and my brothers, we laughing and cutting up. Right? I guess what I'm trying to make is a light point here. That idols are in certain cities for you. Certain places. And like you, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of being empty. I'm afraid of what it looks like when my heart runs out of fuel, even if that fuel is wrong. What would happen if I got rid of my idols? The thing I really depend on more than God. What would it look like to have that kind of blind faith? I'm afraid. I'm afraid of not getting it and feeling that thing. I'm afraid of missing out on the piece of dignity, right, and the pie, right? I'm afraid of death and being nothing. Y'all, come on. I'm a black man in America with a lot of ambition. So like a lot of you, feel like you're fighting uphill socially. And on the other side, some of you are afraid of the slide down. It's easy to get caught up, especially in this country. You know what the Bible tells us? That like Jeroboam's shriveled hand, our hands could not work out our own salvation. So God had to stretch out his own hand to save us from the condemnation of our idolatry. So right after this hand-shriveling incident, the Bible tells us the good prophet refuses to eat with king of Jeroboam. You know, he trying to still work the deal. Hey, man, why don't you come and I'll give you a reward. The prophet was like, God was expecting this, and he told me not to eat with you and go back home. Right? And, and, and go straight back home to Judah after the prophecy and not to stand eat with anyone in the northern kingdom. As a matter of fact, God tells the good prophet to go another way back home than to, than to avoid someone finding him and delaying him or diverting him or killing him on the way back. And the Bible says an old, let's call him bad prophet, the lying prophet from the north, hears about the good prophet's words of Jeroboam. And you know what he hears from chapter verse 2? Hey, all you priests and prophets that are doing wrong, y'all going to get burned up on the altar. That's what he hears. His sons come and tell him, hey, dad, let me tell you what he said. We in trouble, dog, right? Let's get, and, and the Bible says that, that the, that the, that the uh, old bad prophet goes to find the good prophet. And he tells the good prophet that an angel told him. It's always one degree removed, right? Then angel told me, an angel, like, he, that, wow, an angel. That's how you got the Book of Mormon, an angel. Did y'all know that? Sounds so familiar. This angel came down, and boom, we have the Book of Mormon. Another testament of Jesus. No, don't believe it. So an angel came down and said, God said, you can come back and eat with me. And the good prophet decides, contrary to what God told him, to go back and eat with the lying prophet. And while the good prophet is eating, the good prophet gets a true word from God. And while he's eating, this is terrible, sitting at the table. He lets the good prophet know in no uncertain terms that he should have obeyed God and not come back here and that he was not going to make it back home. See ya. 
wouldn't want to be you, right? And the good prophet finishes eating. Now, I don't understand this. You're not going to make it back home tonight, dog. You disobeyed God for eating. Mm, but these ribs good. I'm going to finish. It's like being on death row. I'm going to give you some lobster and some steak. You'll get the, your final meal on death row. And the Bible says after he finished eating. You know, it makes me wonder. Okay, this is just my little thing I threw in there. It's, you know, I like a little drama in there. Now, please, remember I said don't add to the word of God. But just, just for a minute. I would have lost my appetite like a lot of you that said, when you're done eating, head back, you're dead. Right? I don't know how. Maybe a lion will maul you. I don't know. But maybe his heart idol was he was driven by hunger, and maybe he was lonely and needed affirmation after making such a hard prophecy. Right? He just wanted some comfort. Here comes a brother prophet. Hey, man, the angel told me to come back. Yes, I was looking for somebody to like me. Happens to the best of us, right? He's wanted some comfort. And he set out on his, was set out on his donkey back home, and a lion comes and eats him, mauls him, not eats him, mauls him, and not the donkey. And the lion stays beside the body of the good prophet and does not bother the donkey or, or the people coming by. This was definitely all about God judging his sin and disobedience and not a chance happening because a lion worth any good would not let a donkey stay alive. And other food walking by. Hey, what? Y'all see this? Hey, hey, call, 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 call uh, mama and them. Let's go see. Look, there's a, dead, there's a dead prophet and a lion. Nobody does that. Unless it's supernatural and God was trying to make a point. What does this have to do with Jeroboam's and northern king's sin of idolatry? Well, the good prophet's not obeying God's word and doing his own thing. It was representative of Jeroboam's. And the northern kingdom's sin and what could and would happen to even the best of them if they fell into idolatry. Not doing what God says, but this is more than a morbid modeling moral lesson, right? About how bad we are and how God is going to get us. It is hiding like a lion in the woods. And I said that is more than is here. God, don't play, okay? So don't get me wrong here. He is like a lion. It's more. What it's saying is God will redeem us and save us from our idolatry. This story tells us that. By A, being, here my note takers, A, being the living word, and subpoint B, dying so we can live. Let me read this for you. It's our last point here. Chapter, verse 26. And when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard of the mauling, he said, it is the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him according to the word that the Lord spoke to him. And he said to his son, saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it. And he went and found his body thrown in the road and the donkey and a lion standing beside the body. The lion had not eaten the body or torn the donkey. Lion wasn't hungry. No, it was God's judgment. Okay. And the prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it on a donkey and brought it back to the city to mourn and to bury him. And he laid the body in his own grave. And they mourned over him saying, Alas, my brother. And after he had buried him, he said to his sons, When I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones, excuse me, beside his bones. For the same that he called out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places that are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. And then it talks about Jeroboam not listening and doing it anyway. Do you see what the death of the good prophet did? 
Oh, y'all already starting to get it, ain't you? It made what God said and the grace of what God said live and be true above the lies, y'all. Above the idols, above the mess. So much so that the bad prophet is able to see and believe. Why? Because the good prophet, I need to be careful here because the good prophet did disobey. Don't go around disobeying God. In going to the bad prophet's house, hang in here for a minute. It took his presence. The presence of the good prophet in the life, in the house, and in, the de- in, in his death, being buried with and experiencing judgment in the land of the good prophet. For what? The bad pro- in order for the bad prophet to be converted and saved from judgment and condemnation that the bad prophet deserved. When the bad prophet calls the good prophet brother and then says, I want my bones buried with his, he is actually now going to counter and escape the judgment in verse 2 about bones being burned on the altar and not being allowed to be buried in their own tombs. The bad prophet's bones will not be burned in judgment with the other false prophets of the northern kingdom, but he will die into dignity with the good prophet because he believed the word of the good prophet, because he believed the word of God from him, because of the life of the good prophet coming into his life. And that living word changed him. He believed He went from an old false prophet to one who could speak and live according to the truth. After years of possibly being alienated from God's truth, he was able to accept the grace and judgment of God and then adjust his life, have his life redeemed to receive that grace. Why? Because the good prophet was not just giving the word, he was living word. The good prophet went with the bad prophet. He came into his world. He suffered and ate his bread of disobedience and false sacrifice. And the false bad prophet now says, for sure, all that the good prophet said was from the Lord and will come to pass. God's word is true. And I believe, I believe, I repent, not by going around God's grace and making a new way in, but repenting, laying down my sneaky false ways and fake grace and receiving and living only because this prophet lived and died because of God. the word of God doesn't just break our idols and breaks our hearts. It brings life. New life where there is only death and lying and light where there is only darkness. The good prophet was not only the living word though, God's word, God's truth and way become flesh and dwelling with them, but he became the sacrifice for them. The Bible says a lion mauled the good prophet. And then the false prophet put him on a donkey and took him to the false prophet's hometown and buried him. Did you know that a donkey was used to carry the sacrificial lamb to the altar, bearing the sins for the person so the person can be forgiven? It's all kind of imagery here. Hear me now. The reason God said not to go back and not to eat with others was that the good prophet would be be partaking of their sin. It would be like he would be fellowshipping with darkness. It would make his truth not look true. 
He could have been eating food sacrificed to idols up in there, not doing right. I mean, his going and hanging out could mean he would be falsely accused and influenced by these people. And when he did, God killed him for his disobedience and for his sins. Yet his sacrifice, right? His bones, his representative death meant that the false prophet could live free from condemnation, free from falsehood, free from the coming judgment of God. He could live and grow according and in God's grace. He could actually break free from the condemnation he was destined for. He could break free from the hold on his life Jeroboam and his idols had on him. His story changed endings. Is this beginning to sound more familiar to you? Jesus is not just the good prophet. He was the best prophet who came to be the living word. His sacrifice for our sins. Do you know what he did? When you and I face condemnation and judgment for idolatry or face it and suffering in life through our false attempts at dignity and hope and peace and joy and love, Jesus was sent not just with the word of God, but the Bible says as the living word of God. And he came and he dwelt among us and he incarnated into our stories. He didn't just talk about sin and a penalty of sin and our brokenness. He experienced and showed it in his life and death. Now here's where it gets tricky. He wasn't tricked to come and be with sinners. He wasn't deceived into being blamed as being with sinners, right? He wasn't deceived but desired he wasn't tricked, but trusted God's plan. He came to our fallen world, and the Bible says he sat and ate with sinners and people who were the worst idolaters and haters the world could ever know. He made his acquaintance with idolaters and people worshipers and God rejecters and revisers of God's truth in his day. He came to know and knew what the good prophet and Jeroboam and we feel. Jesus knows what it feels like to be hungry for whatever and thirsty. He even said on the cross, I thirst and empty and afraid. A broken human in a fallen world desperate for connection and affirmation on the low end of the social ladder and that he willfully came back to and for you and me. He came into our world. Jesus got in our dirty and degraded life and was dirtied and accused and acquainted with our sin. And the Bible says instead of turning to an idol to save him and us from our sin, he submitted to God's word and will for sinners and was killed on the cross for our sins. That means in the context of the story in Kings today, Jesus was burned and shamed with and for our lying idolatrous ways. And he was buried in the tomb of our alienation and burned by the condemnation and shame we deserve so we don't have to, so that we can profit. Do you know what the symbol is, what symbols used for Jesus in, in his glory? A lion. He's called the lion of the tribe of Judah. It is safe to say Jesus took our sins, our idolatry, our lies and self and other uh, lies and selfishness and other deceptions and was mauled, broken, broken down, hear me, by his own perfect holiness and judgment. And they buried in a sinner's tomb. And this is what the Bible teaches. When we repent, 
we are buried with him in his death. Our sinful ways, our brokenness, our idol-producing fears and hurts and pains, the ways we haven't trusted and feel to trust God in his word, all our idols from A to B and north to south have been buried with him so that like the false bad prophet that you and I can be, God's grace can work in our lives and change us and save us and make us brand new and deliver us from judgment and condemnation. He died so we can live. And the rest of the story, I'll sneak it in. He rose from the grave, right? He defeated sin and idolatry's death, and if we can repent and have faith in him, if we confess our need of him today, we who are buried with him will also live for him after death and rise to a new and eternal life. We'll escape. We'll escape and survive the condemnation of sin with him when it is all said and done. Good news. Good news. You and I don't have to live according to false idols. We don't have to have altars built instead of God. He has sent his living word and sacrifice to raise us to new life and new dignity. This word can be more than a, I told you so, and we are so bad, and we're so stuck, and we're so evil. No, Jesus being the living word, word makes the word a way for us to repent and find not nothing, but real life in him. We can turn away from our idolatry and back to him. We can turn back to the Lord who turned back to get us. Jesus didn't come to show us only what was wrong with us. He came to save us from what's wrong with us. He didn't come just to tell us off and break us down. He came to die to break the power of what is holding us down. A religion just tells you what is wrong and can't save you. A religion is a pro promise to save you, but won't tell you that you are broken. It's not Christianity. It's just an idle faith without Christ. And it means this. You and I can love the word of God and not fear it. You can be hungry and thirsty. Yeah, thirsty in all the slang meanings too. And not be rejected and condemned for being desperate and hurt. You can and should come and return to the grace of God again and again. Some of us have gotten off track. Hear this. You've gotten off track, but he's turned back for you. Will you bury your life with him? Will you consider your dead, should-be-condemned bones united with his? Will you bind your hopes on what is life and death accomplished now and once again? Jesus turned back for you and me by the will of God. How could we not receive him? Come back. Look in the tomb, right? He's, he's gone. Look at the cross. Your life is united with him by faith. You will not face shame and condemnation. That power is broken. For all the idols we still have and suffer from, God sent his prophet for our prophet. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you. We have idols all over the place that seek to condemn us. Thank you because of Christ we escape condemnation because he didn't. We don't have to face the judgment of God we deserve because he did. Lord, right now, I pray that you, because of Christ, would have mercy on us. Because the other lions out there, Satan, and he wishes to devour us. Lord, save us from being devoured. That we may live for you. Lord, for those of us in here, are we, we've been living our own religion halfway, just trying to be religious, coming to church, trying to do our own little thing. Jesus, do it for us. Be the whole thing. Be our life. Be our redemption. Be our forgiveness. Be our resurrection. Be our peace. Be our joy. Be our comfort right now. Be our, our drink and our food for hungry and thirsty hearts. Help us not to go to other places for it. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.